Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posted June 9th, 2017, we talk with University of London professor of politics Lala Khalili about her article in the new WPJ Spring issue, Roads to Power, the Infrastructure of Counterinsurgency. We'll also point out other top features in that spring issue, cover line, Fascism Rising. You're listening to World Policy on Air. Now this. All right, but apart from the sanitation, the medicine, education, wine, public order, irrigation, roads, a fresh water system and public health, what have the Romans ever done for us? A classic scene from Monty Python's often hysterical movie history, Life of Brian, highlights the benefits of imperial conquest to the conquered. But the other side of the denarius, a 200-year B.C. Roman coin, is the surveillance, control, conditioning, and obedience those elements of infrastructure, roads in particular, provide to the conqueror. And it remains just as true in today's world of irregular, unconventional, asymmetrical warfare. So writes Dr. Lala Khalili, professor of politics at the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London, Her article in the New Spring issue of World Policy Journal is headlined, The Roads to Power, the Infrastructure of Counterinsurgency, and we talked about it recently for this podcast. Professor Khalili, welcome to World Policy on Air. I'm very happy to be speaking to you. Say more about that scene in Life of Brian and why you chose it to start your article. Um, It's a very famous scene. I mean, that film has, uh, like everything else that the Monty Python have done, uh, has lots of very quotable passages. And that particular scene um, comes up. I, I bet you anything that a vast majority of your listeners will actually know the scene in which they're all sitting around and one person says, what have the Romans done for us? And, uh, and everybody goes around. And the reason that that was really interesting for me is because, of course, people often repeat that um, unthinkingly. People who are opposed, for example, to imperial or uh, colonial control because it's such a funny scene and the construction of it and the buildup of it, uh, okay, apart from sanitation and medicine and education and this and that and then roads, of course, and bridges. What have the Romans done for us? And so part of the reason that I uh, wanted to start this piece with that is because in a way, this is a particular kind of narrative you also hear very frequently in the United Kingdom, where people say, well, yes, colonialism must have been terrible, but look at us, we've brought railroads and parliamentary systems and this and that to uh, the, the former colonies. And of course, I'm not tackling here the parliamentary system. I wanted to talk about something that is much more concrete, literally and figuratively, uh, and which actually uh, addresses the question of the kinds of infrastructures that colonial powers put into place. And that's why I started with that scene, also because that scene is so appealing and encapsulating that particular narrative. Talk about the more revealing Talmudic passage on which the life of Brian is based, which led to exaltation and an actual extermination. Yes. So um, I am incredibly grateful to an NYU colleague, uh, Professor Barney uh, Rubin, who suggested the Talmudic passage to me after reading something that I had written uh, about 
this life of Brian. In the famous Talmudic passage, two rabbis are uh, speaking to each other. It's in the Tractate Shabbat 33b. And Rabbi Judah praises the works of the Romans by saying they've made streets, they've built bridges, they've erected baths. And Rabbi Simon uh, counters Rabbi Judah by saying, well, they, they made that all for themselves. They built marketplaces to set harlots in them, baths to rejuvenate themselves, bridges to levy tolls for them. And uh, the, the story has a, quite a grim ending because, of course, then Rabbi Simon is executed for having challenged this narrative about the Romans. But what this particular Talmudic series, which, uh, sorry, Talmudic passage, which actually very much, it seems to me, to be at the base of that Life of Brian scene, uh, says is that it, is, it actually reveals that these infrastructures, what the Romans have done for us, is actually done for them. And I thought that it would be quite an appropriate way to go back to the source rather than to the British uh, Life of Brian parodic version uh, in order to get at what it was that the Romans had done uh, for uh, the, uh, well, in this instance, the Judean people. We know about the long supply tale of any advancing army, but you say that an even larger tale of civilians comes later, further reshaping a, conquest, uh, a conquered land economically and politically, also in the conqueror's interest. Give us some examples of that. I'm sure that, again, your listeners are familiar with Bertolt Brecht's very famous uh, Mother Courage, which is uh, specifically about... Uh, the, this kind of tale of civilians who follows militaries around. I mean, in medieval times, uh, all armies moving across the surface of Europe were followed by very large civilian populations who set up markets around the battlefields, and they provided all sorts of things. They uh, provided victuals, but they also repaired weapons and clothing and the uh, chainmail that the soldiers wore. They provided not only food supplies, but also sex work. And this large civilian tale, it, it actually each military, sometimes it was um, anywhere from about half the size of the army itself to about 150% the size of it. So in a sense, the war, the battlefield ended up becoming not only a place where war was fought, but actually this enormous marketplace where a lot of commercial services took place, a lot of commercial transactions took place. Now, even in later dates, this, this kind of... Um, impromptu, if you will, uh, set up of a market uh, following militaries happened quite often. And, and the biggest changes came with Napoleon, who, of course, changed the face of uh, Western European warfare. But it is certainly worth noting that even as late as the 19th century, every time an army went fighting somewhere, there would be immediate markets springing up. There would be immediate forms of commerce happening. And again, this is actually uh, not in my uh, article, but recently I was talking to someone who was telling me about their memories of uh, living in uh, on the Gulf Coast of Saudi Arabia near Dammam and Al-Khubar, and when the U.S. military set up camp there in the 1990-1991 uh, in preparation for the first Gulf War against Iraq or for the first war against uh, the U.S. war against Iraq, uh, one of the things that they said was that that completely, that large influx of U.S. forces totally changed the shape of Dammam, Al-Khubar, and Dahran 
where malls sprang up, uh, American-style fast food places sprang up, etc., etc., which to me was quite striking because, of course, as we know, Dammam, Dahran, Al-Khubar, those Gulf cities are also the home of Aramco. So you would have imagined that there would have been a very thriving Western-style commercial kind of um, enterprise in those places. And yet the entry of the soldiers, even as recently as 1990, resulted in the emergence of new commercial ventures. So it's, for me, it's this, this link between warfare and commerce is one of the things that is fascinating. And it's one of the things that I think requires a lot more study. And that's why I'm uh, looking at roads as one of the instances of such a kind of a convivial or symbi- symbiotic relationship between war and commerce. Even the massive U.S. highway system, you note, has military routes. Oh, absolutely. There's a 1956 uh, U.S. law passed which established the national system of interstate and defense highways. In fact, that is the name of the law. And it was designed, I mean, just remember that this is, of course, the height of the Cold War. And so the, the uh, law designed to facilitate the movement of troops and military equipment across the country and use that kind of a reasoning as a means of investing in U.S. infrastructure. Um, the echoes of that still can, can be heard in the U.S. I mean, what's interesting is that the highway system in the U.S. actually has its origins in the Indian Wars of the 19th century. Many of those routes that follow east-west actually follow the initial routes through which the U.S. Uh, United States Army went out west to uh, subdue and suppress uh, Native Americans. And so it is interesting that those roads then were superlaid or superimposed on by the subsequent uh, highway system. And the highway system, of course, had a dual use to encourage commerce, which is the thing that people immediately think about when they think of the U.S. highway system uh, but also and the interstate system. But also uh, they were quite crucial to uh, ensuring that the continental U.S. was covered logistically and strategically by or accessible uh, logistically and strategically by the U.S. military just in case. And the construction process of roads itself is a driver of economic transformation in the United States and around the world. Um, Of course it is. I mean, uh, anybody who has listened to congressional debates over funding uh, at each round every year um, it, it's very clear to them that the, the, the kinds of infrastructure spending, and particularly on roads, is something that is often fought over bitterly with one state wanting to secure their own share of funding for highways at the, at the expense of other states. And, and in fact, um, again, as your, as your listeners probably are, remember very recently, uh, expenditure over infrastructures, and particularly roads and bridges, was something that Donald Trump, now President of the United States, put forward as one of the things that distinguished him uh, perhaps from some of his Republican, um, from some of his Republican rivals in the primaries. Well, that is part of the answer to my next question of how relevant is this history in our modern age of insurgency and counterinsurgency? Well, that's a very good question. I mean, up to now, what, what we've talked about is sort of the commercial side of it. But I think that one of the other things that roads are quite significant is that they function at several different levels, at several different scales, if you will, um, in today's warfare. And what I mean by several different scales is that there is often a strategic or political 
uh, let's say uh, there's a political reasoning for having roads. Then there are strategic reasons for having them. And finally, there are very fine-grained, textured, tactical military reasons for uh, investment in roads at, in, the t- in times of war, not in peacetime uh, sort of um, logistical uh, kind of buildup. So politically speaking, uh, from the 19th century onwards, uh, there's been a recognition uh, by European conquerors in places where they fought small wars, counterinsurgencies, or wars of pacification, that roads functioned incredibly importantly, not only, as I said, as a tactical or strategic military kind of tool or instrument, but as a political one. So for example, the um, Marshal Thomas Robert Bougot, who invaded and colonized Algeria in the early part of the 19th century, Century or in the first half of the 19th century, for him, uh, what was really crucial was that to ha- for, for the Arabs to be pacified, that there had to be centers of government and population and commerce, and that these had to be connected, and that they had to be brought into what he called into the, into the um, life of the civilized nations. And the way that you would do that is through what he called those large arteries that circulate the life of civilized nations. And those to him were inland points, major roads, factories, villages, and farms. So these, are, these were to him political, economic, functional instruments net used necessary for pacification. But that's at the level of political. Um, at the level of strategic, you also look at wars, uh, sorry, look at roads as being quite significant ways in which you, for example, um, end up incorporating uh, civilian populations into the job of counterinsurgency by uh, giving them jobs, for example. Um, you, but you also... Uh, by providing them these kinds of uh, these kinds of material uh, benefits, what you're trying to do in essence is you're trying to, as a counterinsurgent force, you're trying to persuade the civilians that this is that what you're doing is something good for them. You're trying to persuade them to come to your side. And finally, tactically, there is enormous importance to these uh, kinds of roads. David Kilcullen, who was a guru of counterinsurgency, very significant writer and thinker, a scholar soldier, um, has very specifically spelled out the way that the uh, counterinsurgency is uh, quite significant. And he actually begins from the top level by saying, like the Romans, the Romans keep appearing again and again when you think about road building. But he says, like the Romans, you can use roads to expand governance, you can use them as a means of sending patrolling forces. You can, but you can also, and then he goes in and he gives a whole lot of tactical reasons. And one of them, for example, which I always found fantastically interesting, is that um, if you have roads, what you do is, as a counterinsurgent force, you force the guerrillas up to the hills and then away from the villages where the roads run through, because villages tend to be in valleys or in in the roads, uh, where the roads uh, cross. And he says that when you send the insurgents up the hills, what they're doing in order to shoot at the counterinsurgents force, they're shooting downhill at the villages. And what this effect is that he says, and I'm going to read this bit, he says the population gets a visual impression of the enemy firing down into the valley where they live. And the security forces are seen to be defending the villages rather than as previously before you had roads, the enemy was living in the village and the security forces were attacking the villages to get at the enemy. So there's a lot of tactical thinking about what roads do. And that's, I think, quite significant in today's insurgency and counterinsurgency. You also quote Kilcullen uh, on a psychological level, again, uh, really going to that expression we hear so often, hearts and minds. 
Yes. For him, hearts and minds, I mean, hearts and minds is now a cliche. Anybody, you know, you, you hear it not only in the context of counterinsurgency where first the phrase emerged, but you hear it everywhere. But what he talks about hearts and minds is hearts means persuading people that their best interests are served by the counterinsurgent success. And minds means convincing them that you can protect them and that resisting you is pointless. And he then goes on to say, note that neither concept has to do with whether people like you. Calculated self-interest is what counts. And that's why roads are seen as a really good, both a bribe to bring over the population, but also as a kind of, as I said, a, a means of showing them that the counterinsurgents mean business. Talk about the way road building and related logistics projects also consolidate, empower, and stabilize local institutions and local leaders. Yeah. And in, an incredible instance of this happens in Afghanistan, where... Um, in, in the major kinds of projects of road building, which have been part of the U.S. counterinsurgency since 2001 in Afghanistan, um, a lot of the deals that have been made, whether directly through the military's investment funds itself in, uh, or through uh, USAID and other kinds of aid agencies, has been to find local interlocutors who can help in the, in the job of building these roads. And what they end up doing uh, is something that has happened since colonial times. The interlocutors, the local leadership that the U.S. military or aid agencies find, tend to be uh, brought in via a local tribal leader, uh, or what Kilcullen calls tribes and community groups. And what this, of course, ends up doing is that it gives often quite financially lucrative deals to these local tribe, tribal leaders or whatnot. And what, of course, that does in turn is that even you're, if you're living in an area where these kinds of tribal uh, structures were not as strong as you would think they are, by giving the deals to these tribal leaders, what, what the U.S. military or aid, agent, aid agencies are doing are reinforcing this kind of tribal system. And this is, again, this is something that has happened in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, in India, in fact, in many other kinds of colonial settings since quite a long time, since 19th century at least, perhaps even uh, longer. But in the current time, what, it, what, the, what this kind of construction does is it gives a lot of money and quite a lot of power to certain local leaders, and they choose whom to distribute the funds to, whom to give the building jobs to. And, of course, what that does is that it means that whether or not the U.S. wants to, it finds itself aligned with some people who are getting the benefits of its road-building projects, while others who are being left out because of whatever local enmities or fissures um, will probably see the U.S. as not being uh, as equally... Uh, uh, generous uh, to, to, to everybody. And of course, that, that further intensifies local enmities. A very different logistical approach to counterinsurgency involving roads and other structures, uh, you note, is Israel's in the Palestinian territories. Describe the contrast. Um, the contrast is, uh, I mean, some of it is temporal. Uh, obviously, the uh, Israeli state has uh, occupied the West Bank um, and before that Gaza and East Jerusalem since 1967. And so the, the duration, the sheer duration of this now 50 years this year means that there are 
particular ways in which the projects of road building have become embedded as part of the military administration of these areas, which is quite significant and very different in the way that Afghanistan works. But one of the other significant factors is that what you have also in the West Bank, particularly now, is a lot of settlements. Uh, which you don't have in Afghanistan. And settlements have um, a military function, uh, a, a stated, explicitly stated military function for Israel. They are often seen as a kind of a civilian extension of territorial control in the West Bank. And they're also tactically and strategically act as a kind of an outpost overlooking Palestinian habitation. They also, in some senses, pin Israeli forces into the furthest reaches of these occupied territories in the West Bank. Now, in order for these settlements not to be outposts that are abandoned in the back of the beyond, what you end up doing is, what the Israeli state ends up doing, is builds roads that link them. And these roads then facilitate movements between uh, different settlements. There are also rules about who can go on these roads. So if, if uh, a car has an Israeli license plate, they're allowed onto it. But if the car has, uh, and, and of course the settlers will have cars with Israeli license plates. Whereas if the car has a uh, Palestinian authority license plate, even though these roads are in an area supposedly under the control of Palestinian authority, these Palestinians will not be allowed onto those roads. So those roads also serve to facilitate the movement, the mobility of some people, in this instance settlers, and to actually act as a kind of a stoppage, as a kind of a, um, another method of controlling the movement and mobility of Palestinians. Another factor that is really quite significant about these roads, and again, it differs very significantly from uh, the uh, Afghan case, is that the roads are also a means through which uh, Israelis declare eminent domain and confiscate further Palestinian land. If we accept that a kind of a settler occupation of the West Bank is a kind of a zero-sum game over land, then the roads also, again, reinforce this function of, uh, of uh, occupation of uh, further Palestinian land and disposition of Palestinians from farmland. Um, and, and the fact that these roads are laid out sometimes in some of the most fertile places in, in the West Bank uh, kind of reinforces this. Uh, there are particular reports by Beta Selim, which is an Israeli human rights organization, recording how many uh, dunams of land had been confiscated for this. And the numbers are actually quite astonishing. Um, it is... Uh, Something, for example, in one uh, in, in one period, you had 40,000 acres of land were uh, were confiscated from Palestinians, and because of the usage of military necessity as a reason, this confiscation could not be challenged in uh, court. Which, again, as I said, it's um, it, it it functions very differently than it does in Afghanistan. Your article begins with the British comedy crew Monty Python, as we've noted, then moves to many citations. Uh, from the Australian military veteran David Kilcullen, I had the chance to interview once or twice, and ends with the theories of French philosopher Michel Foucault on the importance of what yeah. he calls circulation to creating and policing yeah. structures of power. First, what does he mean by circulation, and how does it relate to uh, counterinsurgency today, as well as economy, capitalism in particular? Okay, so that's a great question. Um, often people, when when they say when they say Foucault's name, there's a kind of a 
respectful or terrified hush falls because uh, often his writing is quite dense. But he does have one particular, um, a, se a series of lectures that he gave towards the end of his life where he was trying to think through European history and, uh, and, and the connections between political economy and the ways in which we live today. So this is a kind of a genealogy of present, if you will. And one of the things that he comes up with is that sometime in the 18th century, circulation becomes central to the functioning of the state. And when he, what, when he, what he talks about circulation is he doesn't just mean physical transportation of goods and people uh, or the networks that support this, for example, roads. But he actually talks about how circulation uh, of both goods and people and the roads require, and I quote him, a set of regulations, constraints and limits. They require facilities and encouragements that will allow for circulation. And in order for these kinds of regulations, constraints, facilities, encouragements to happen, the uh, police is introduced into this, or a policing force is introduced to this. And what he talks about, in the, particularly in the context of the 18th century, is how in some places encouraging circulation and in other places placing limits on circulation allows for the facilitation of emergence of capitalism. Some of the examples that he gives, if for example, suppression of vagrancy. And we now know that some of those vagrancy laws that were passed both in Britain and in France, but also elsewhere in Europe, were actually intended to transform people who had been dispossessed from land or thrown off their lands because of processes like enclosures and turned them into wage workers. So the response to vagrancy law would have been for these people to go and work in, uh, in, in workhouses or, in fact, in emerging factories. Um, in addition to that, of course, uh, these roads also, uh, these kinds of vagrancy laws, the stoppage of circulation would have uh, prevented qualified workers from leaving their place of work. So, so it became a form of regulating workers. And on the other hand, allowing for circulation, um, it also then uh, it allowed for the spreading of state control over larger territories. And so roads and the policing of those roads uh, functions both to reinforce state power, but also to encourage the emergence of capitalism. And I think this has been so significant that as anybody who's read a little bit of Marx knows that all of the second volume of Capital, um, a little bit of his third volume, uh, some of his Grundrisse, is actually all about this idea of circulation. And today, anybody who focuses on logistics uh, will know that forms of transportation are central to connecting the different parts of the world in facilitating the movement of goods across supply chains. And of course, a kind of an infrastructural power that gives today, gives those who run these logistics services uh, a great deal of power in determining exactly how trade is done transnationally. Professor Khalili, thank you. My pleasure. It has been lovely to speak to you. Dr. Lala Khalili is a professor of politics at the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London and the author of Time in the Shadows, Confinement in Counterinsurgencies, from the Stanford University Press in 2013. Her article in the World Policy Journal Spring Issue, Roads to Power, the Infrastructure of Counterinsurgency, is based on a lecture given at Georgetown University in 2016. Since we spoke, another deadly Islamist attack in Great Britain on and close by London Bridge demonstrated again that while infrastructure may help counterinsurgency, it also provides soft targets for terrorists. In eight minutes before they were killed by police, three Islamist-inspired terrorists with only a white van and long knives killed seven civilians and wounded nearly 50. 
Prime Minister Theresa May blamed far too much tolerance of extremism in our country, implying new toughness in Muslim communities and in cyberspace. But May had previously cut police funding, and just days later her Conservative Party lost its parliamentary majority in the snap election May had called, according to a key exit poll a stunning upset that raised doubts about pending Brexit negotiations and her future as PM. Nasty and misleading tweets about the reaction of London's first Muslim mayor, Sadiq Khan, by U.S. President Donald Trump led to demands that his invitation to visit Great Britain later this year be scrubbed. Trump tweets also exploited the London violence to buttress demands for the executive order he continued to call a U.S. ban on travelers from six mainly Muslim countries, though many legal experts said using the word ban could undermine Trump's bid to have the Supreme Court overturn several lower court rulings against it. Trump resisted tweeting during Senate testimony by fired FBI Director James Comey about, quote, lies plain and simple by the president, and requests that could be seen as improper or even obstruction of justice. Two intelligence agency chiefs denied feeling White House pressure, but did not tell the same Senate panel exactly what Trump said to them. And there was confusion over a major split in the Sunni Arab alliance that Trump unveiled during his Middle East visit in May. Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and the United Arab Emirates led a sudden break of links with Qatar, claiming it was too cozy with ISIS and Iran-supported Muslim militants, although Qatar also hosts two key U.S. command posts for operations in the region. Adding confusion, days later, ISIS attacked major targets in Iran. Also featured in the new WPJ Spring issue, cover line Fascism Rising, You'll find numerous views on how corruption of language and distortion of history contribute to dictatorship and how the process can best be fought. Also reports on Trump's savage brand of capitalism, on the retro-macho politics that doomed Dilma Rousseff in Brazil, and on Ukraine, buffer or flashpoint between Russia and the West. And listen next week when our podcast will consider the battle over Ukraine's past to help shape its future. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, online news editor Laurel Jerombeck, podcast producer Anna Grace Carter. I'm David Alpern.